0: So Genesis 17, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 14. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. As far as the reading of God's word, let's pray. Our gracious heavenly fathers, we come to your word this morning. We pray that you'd open our eyes, that we might see, behold, and understand what your word says. And Lord, in understanding, we might believe, and in believing, we might be transformed and live differently. And Lord, above all, we ask that you would help us see how your word and your plan of redemption points us to our savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray Amen. Well, as the music of the wedding ceremony was coming to a crescendo, the doors at the back of the sanctuary flung open. And as the bride was revealed for the first time, there was an audible gasp from the audience. But there was no mistaking what type of gasp it was. It was certainly not one of awe and admiration, but of abhorrence and disgust. This bride was horribly unattractive. She had a disheveled and sloppy appearance. You could hardly tell that her dress had once been white because it was covered in stains and spots and blemishes. And the bride's face drooped low, for she never made eye contact with anyone. Her guilt and her shame would not allow her to, for she was a woman of ill repute. And what a contrast she was to the king who was seeking her hand in marriage. His radiant beauty eclipsed her repulsiveness. His spotless garments had outshone her stained dress. His impeccable reputation was far more well-established than her ill repute. And the wealth that he had to his own name far exceeded the debts that she had to hers. What a contrast she was to her king. But it was a contrast that did not deter this king in the least from pursuing this bride. He pursued this bride to be with an unwavering, undeterred resolve, despite her numerous strayings and wanderings. And now finally, the ceremony was here, and to signify and seal their marriage, he took out a ring and he placed it on her finger, and as he did so, he spoke these words to her, I give you this ring as a sign of my promise to love you with an everlasting love. And with this ring, I give it to you as a sign that I am yours And you are mine. Now, what did I just describe to you? What I just described to you in a picture form is the God who graciously and relentlessly pursues sinners like us, that he might bring us into a covenant relationship with himself. That's what I just described to you. The word covenant may be an odd and unfamiliar word to you and an odd concept. But it's a word that brings us very, very close to the heart of the Bible storyline and to the heart of the gospel. Now, why do I mention this word covenant? Well, I paid a lot of money to go to seminary to learn words like these. (laughs) That's not why. The reason I'm highlighting this word covenant is because our text, Genesis 17, highlights this word covenant 13 times in Genesis 17, the word covenant. Now, I'm I'm not very smart, but when my parents repeated something over and over again, I knew it was important. So what's a covenant? Well, look at verse 7 of Genesis 17. I think this gets as close as we can in this text to the essence of what a covenant is. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and your offspring after you. This is what God is pursuing with Abraham, with us. And if if I had to write my own catechism, and a catechism is, is a question and answer kind of teaching tool that kind of comes from Israel's history. In Israel's history, they had all these ceremonies, all these practices, and yet they had these kids growing up who didn't quite understand them. So they said, when someone asks you, why do we do this? Here's what you give them. It's a catechism tool. Well, if I had to write my own catechism, here's what it would sound like when it comes to covenant. Question one, what is a covenant? Answer, a covenant is a relationship. It's key, established by God in which he promises to be our God and he takes us to be his people. Question two, for Presbyterian, they have to be longer than just one question, okay? <laughs> what are some of the other parts that make up a covenant? Answer, a covenant also includes promises that God makes to us, like I will never leave you or forsake you. They include vows that we make to God, like I will worship no other gods beside you. And they include signs to help us remember this relationship, like the sign of the rainbow that God placed in the sky for Noah and for creation. Question three, what is the best example we have of a covenant today? Answer, marriage and a wedding ceremony is the best example we have of a covenant today. In a wedding ceremony, a relationship between a husband and a wife is established. And during that ceremony, promises are made and vows are taken, and then you have the exchanging of rings, which becomes the sign of that covenant, which has been established in that ceremony. Catechism lesson over. But we need to make a critical distinction between covenants that humans make with one another and the type of covenants that God makes with us. Human marriage, human relationships, are generally marked by compatibility attraction there's something about the other person that draws someone to pursue them in a relationship like marriage they can be substantive reasons like they're a godly person with wonderful character or they can be superficial reasons like they got a lot of money and I would like some of that okay but either way either way there's something in the other person that attracts us to them we love that which we determine to be lovely but praise the Lord, that his covenant does not operate on the same basis that our covenants do, or we would not be here to talk about it. Think about it with Sarah and Abraham who we're looking at. What drew the Lord, what inherent quality in Abraham and Sarah drew the Lord to them in Genesis 12 to call them to be his people? What did Abraham and Sarah do once they were called to sustain and to continue to merit God's favor after he had called them? answer to both of those questions is nothing. What inherent quality do you possess that would draw the Lord and his favor and his love to you and say, you're worthy of this? The answer is nothing. We often speak of God's love as unconditional. God's love is not unconditional. It's better than that. It is contra-conditional. We don't just not meet the qualifications, we actually break them. And yet, in spite of that, God still sets his saving love upon us, despite our unloveliness. I love how C.S. Lewis stated it. God loves us, not because we're so lovable, but because he is love. God loves us, not so that he can receive something, but so that he can give of himself to us. That's what our God is like. So that's the big picture of covenant, which is all over this chapter and the Bible and the gospel. But let's look more closely at some of the details of this chapter and see what are some of the lessons we learn from the covenant relationship that God graciously pursues with us. First lesson is this. The God who graciously enters into covenant with us calls us to live differently before him. When God brings us into a covenant relationship, he calls us to live differently before him. Look at verses one and two of Genesis 17. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God almighty, walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. And then jump down to verses nine and 10. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. So think of it like two parallel tracks of a railroad. Walk before me and keep my covenant are to be the tracks that are to guide and direct Abraham for his entire life. Every step Abraham takes is to be guided by the fact that he is in a covenant relationship with God who calls him to live differently than the world around him. And whether we acknowledge it or not, whether we're conscious of it or not, our walk in life, the direction we go, is determined by the relationship that we most cherish and value in our life. And by walk, I don't mean just going out for a stroll, I mean where our focus in life is, where, where we're headed, the goal and orientation of our life, what gets us out of bed in the morning and on with our day. The steps we take are determined by the relationship we most value and cherish. For some, the relationship they most value and cherish is their relationship with money. And therefore, their walk in life is determined and headed towards accumulating more of it, securing more of it, and keeping it. For others, the relationship they most value is their relationship with the approval of others. They live life always in relationship with what other people think of them. And therefore, their walk in life is determined by winning or maintaining or reclaiming the good opinion of others. And the list could go on and on and on. Relationships are like magnets. The more we value and cherish that relationship, the stronger the magnetic pull is on our walk in life, our focus and our direction. Which begs the question, which relationship in your life has the strongest magnetic pull on your focus your direction, where you're headed, what motivates and drives you. Because what the Lord is saying to Abraham, and by extension to us, is that when we are in a covenant relationship with the Lord, it is to trump and transcend all other relationships. It becomes the central hub from which all the spokes of our life flow out of. It is the thing which everything else rotates and revolves around. And part of what that means is that we think And live and act differently than those who are not in a saving covenant relationship with the Lord. I think the reason that the Lord starts off Genesis 17 by saying this is because Sarah and Abraham have forgotten who they're in a covenant relationship with. And in Genesis 16, they were not living and thinking and acting differently than the world. In fact, they had a momentary lapse of walking before the Lord and they started walking in their own wisdom according to their own foolishness, following the do-it-yourself plan of the world. And that's why we got into the love triangle mess between Sarah, Hagar, and Abraham. And so the Lord's opening words in Genesis 17 are part rebuke and part restoration. I am God Almighty. You've forgotten who I am. I am the God who is unstoppable in power and therefore has never met an immovable obstacle that I cannot overcome. You think that I can't do this, this thing, producing a child for you, and yet I am God Almighty. And then he follows it up by saying, walk before me. Walk before me. Live all of life conscious of my presence, submissive to my authority, and focused on my glory. That's what it means to walk before the Lord. We live all of life conscious of his presence with us wherever we go, Submissive to his authority in all of our dealings and focused on his glory in all of our actions. But we need to be clear. Our walking before the Lord in obedience is always, always, always in response to his graciously bringing us into a covenant relationship with himself. Think about it. Is the command to walk before me and be blameless in Genesis 17, does it come before or after God called them in Genesis 12. comes after. The call to walk before me and be blameless in Genesis 17, does it come before or after Abraham believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness? It comes after. The sequence of events in Abraham's life are critical to understand what it looks like to live in a covenant relationship with the Lord. When Paul says in Ephesians 2 that you are saved, by faith, through grace, apart from works. You have to understand, he's not making a revolutionary statement. He's not saying God came in the New Testament and had a change of heart and he wanted to make things easier for you. No, he was saying that God's heart has always been one of graciously drawing people into a covenant relationship with him. Paul was making explicit what had been implied all along. God pursues us, God calls us, God redeems us, And therefore, we respond by walking before him in gratitude. We have a classic case of the horse and the cart. I know we don't use horses and carts anymore, but this is a classic case. We have the grace horse and the obedience cart. And we need to get them in the right order. We don't want to put the obedience cart before the grace horse. That's legalism. That's salvation by works. Yet, we also don't want to do what some people do they get out of the obedience cart, they light it on fire and burn it, and then ride off on the grace horse into a life of living however they please, that grace may abound. Instead, we want the grace horse to proceed and lead and motivate and direct the obedience cart. So when it comes to Christian obedience, we have to be clear what it is and what it isn't. Christian obedience is... Our grateful response to grace, our visible evidence of faith, our tangible demonstration of love to God, and our witness before a lost world. It's those things. But it is never our payment for God's pardon and our attempt to purchase God's love. You cannot pay for those things and you cannot purchase them. They're only given freely to us in Christ. So our Christian obedience Is our grateful, this is a whole sermon I'm trying to pack in just four phrases. Our grateful response to grace, the visible evidence of our faith, the tangible demonstration of our love and our witness to the world. Let your light shine. Never payment for pardon, never purchase of love. So that's one of the lessons about being in a covenant relationship with God. Second lesson, the God who graciously enters into covenant with us, gives us a new identity. He renames us. And the reason I love Genesis 17 is because I can finally stop misnaming Abraham and Sarah. This is finally the chapter where we come and I don't have to decide what to call them. And I know some of you have probably been bothered because I've been just saying Abraham and Sarah because, you know, that's what they're named now, and so I just I'll stick with that. God changes their names. And when we choose names today, we, we don't quite have the same significance and weight in, in naming people that they did back then. Today, we choose names because we like how it sounds. We choose names because there's a family connection to someone we know. There's a historical connection to someone we respect or, in some of your cases, probably is the only name the spouses could agree on. This is just you want to end the fight. I know I know parents who had kids for days. They just couldn't come up with a name. Poor, unnamed child. But in biblical times, names carried a significant amount of weight. Names were things like memorials of God's grace. Think of Ishmael which means God hears. It's a memorial that God heard, Hagar. Names were ways of hoping and anticipating what God might accomplish through this child. So Noah was named Noah, which means rest or refreshment because maybe this child will give us rest from our labors and our toil. Or names were even ways of foreshadowing the future, whether bright or bleak. Think of Abel's name. Abel's name means breath or mist because he had a short time on this earth. So there's a the significance of naming, but then there's the even heightened significance of renaming someone in the Bible. And we've met with this once already. In Genesis 3.20, the woman is then named Eve. She didn't have the name Eve before Genesis 3.20. Adam names her Eve because she is the mother of all living. And Eve's name in Hebrew means life giver. That Adam is hoping in the promise that God has just made that death will not get the last word, that rebellion will not get the last word and that from her will come life. And so renaming in the Bible is always done in light of a new promise that God has made or a new purpose or status that God has called someone to. Renaming is a clear indication that God is on the move, that he's up to something special in his plan of redemption. So Genesis 17, we have two of the clearest examples of that. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. Genesis 17:4 to 7. Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. So he's now the man formerly known as Abram, who will henceforth be known as Abraham. And no, this is not about some flavorful ham or cut of meat. Abraham means father of a multitude, that he's being renamed to correspond to the new purpose, the new promise that God has given him. And notice how God speaks about this promise. Look at verse four and notice even the tense of the verb that God speaks in verse four. By covenant is with you, you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. So it's future tense. You shall be. Well, look at verse five, though. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. You see, in those two verses, God goes from the future tense to the past tense. I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. Now, does the Lord struggle with understanding his verb tenses? Does he need a grammar lesson? Not at all. From the vantage point of history, it has not yet appeared. Therefore, the future tense. But from the vantage point of God's faithfulness, from the vantage point of his sovereignty, from the vantage point of his truthfulness that he never lies, his promises are as good as done, and therefore, the past tense. Abraham is struggling to believe these promises, and God is helping him by speaking in the past tense so that he knows that God will fulfill his promise. And the New Testament does this as well for you, believer. When it speaks of your identity and status in Christ, it speaks of it in the present and past tense. For example, 2 Corinthians 5:17, a very precious verse, says this: If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation present tense. The old has passed away, past tense. Behold, the new has come. Not future tense, but present and past tense, which, like for Abraham, is dumbfounding to our experience and our senses. I don't know about you, but I don't feel like a new creation in Christ in much of my present experience. Physically, my hair is fading faster than I can imagine. My eyesight is disappearing at a scary pace. I have to take more Tylenol than I've ever taken up to this point in my life. Not to mention spiritually speaking. My old sinful habits, anger, selfishness, pride are stubbornly outlasting my hair and my eyesight. So how am I a new creation? What's with the present and past tense, Lord? We have to remember, we walk by faith and not by sight. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. So we can speak of the present as if it, we can speak of the future as if it's in the present right now. And he who came to purchase our redemption and said, it is finished will finish the work he is doing in each and every one of us individually. He will bring his finished work to completion in us. And therefore we can speak of it as if it's already come to pass. So like Abraham, our identity is determined by the promises and purposes and character of God, not by our senses and our experience. And the same goes for Sarah, who's renamed in verses 15 to 19. Look there with me. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. And then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. God said, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. This is a significant moment in the storyline so far of Abraham as the first time God addresses Sarah directly. It's the first time that she finds out explicitly how she is folded into this promise. What's God's plan for her? Well, his plan for her is that she would be the one through whom Abraham also brings forth this offspring, which includes nations and kings. So her name, Sarah, means princess. Princesses give birth to royalty, to kings. So he's not just gonna overcome her barrenness, generally speaking, she's gonna produce kings. And Abraham is so astonished by this. He's really old at this point, by, by any stretch of the matter, he's 99. He's been waiting 13 years since last chapter. So he laughs, and it's not he's not mocking the Lord. It's, it's kind of the laugh of astonishment. I, I can't believe, how, how is this going to be? Yet, why is the Lord waiting this long? Well, the Lord's timing works out in such a way that when it is done, there is no question who did it, who accomplished it. This was the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. And so God's going to get the last laugh with them, especially since the child's name Isaac means he laughs. The Lord will keep laughing at them, as it were. Yeah, he, he, he renames her. He, he gives these promises specifically to her. And I imagine for her, this hearing from the Lord like this was like drinking from a fresh spring in the midst of a barren wilderness. Up to this point, Sarah's understanding of herself, her identity, her, her self-perception had been defined by what she lacked. I am barren. I am childless. I cannot produce offspring. We talked about last week how, how massive of a deal it was for women, especially in that time, place, and culture. And her identity struggle was partly what motivated her to do what she did in Genesis 16. I am barren, I am childless, and so I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to take matters into my own. I'm going to do the the DIY method of producing a child. And it it made matters worse. But then here comes the Lord, who does not cast her off, but graciously continues to pursue Sarah and Abraham, even in their sin, and he gives her a new identity. (laughs) And that's in part what it means to be in a covenant relationship with the Lord. It not only defines how we live, it defines who we are most fundamentally. He gives us a new identity. He renames us. And, and we live in a world that is flooded with identity disorder. People are asking, who am I, and answering it wrong all the time. And if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle in this area as well. We struggle to define ourselves in all the wrong ways. I am my past sins. I am my present struggles. I am my financial portfolio. I am my children's accomplishments or lack of accomplishments. I am my success or lack of success at work. I am my present inadequacies and failures. I am what other people think of me. And on and on the identity list could go. But when God brings us into a covenant relationship with himself, he renames us. He defines who we are. He says, You are mine, for I have bought you with a price. You are forgiven, for I have washed your sins away. You are adopted, because I brought you into my family. You are justified, because you have been given a righteousness which you can never earn for yourself. You are cleansed from all unrighteousness. You're a member of the body of Christ. You're a citizen of a new kingdom. You are a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, the new. Has come. God not only defines how we live, he defines who we are. He brings us into covenant with himself and he says, I've given you a new name and it's one that I give you. Well, third and finally, the God who graciously enters into a covenant relationship with us marks us with a sign of remembrance. Now, signs are something we're, we're somewhat familiar with. We, ha- we have them everywhere to a degree. There's political signs, all over, that are signifying which candidate you should vote for which candidate you should support. There are wedding rings, which signify that someone's in a covenant relationship, that they belong to another. We have, we have sports signs that signify which team you support, which team you cheer for. Some of you might even have a tattoo of a former boyfriend or girlfriend, which signifies that at one time you had a lapse in judgment. <laughs> Raise your hand. No, I'm just okay, sorry. <laughs> we, we, we have signs, and certain things draw us to take to, to signs. But whatever form they come, they, they're meant to signify or remind us or communicate something. And here in Genesis 17, God gives a unique sign, a unique and painful sign that was meant to remind these people of certain realities. So look at verses 9 to 11 with me. verses 9 to 11, God tells Abraham what the sign of the covenant will be. God said to Abraham, for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then verses 12 and 13 not only tells him what the sign is, but who the sign is to be applied to. Verses 12 and 13. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he was born in your house and he who is bought with your money, shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. Now just in case, are worried about how I plan to handle this portion of scripture, you can rest assured that my focus will be on the biblical and theological significance of this. Sign. No attempt at a detailed medical description will take place. No diagrams will be used to aid me in the preaching of this section. The main question we want to ask, especially when we come to this section, is why this covenant sign? What reminders did God design this sign to communicate to the people of God. There's a couple of them. First, this sign reminded the people of God's purchase and possession of them. Remember covenant, I am your God and you are my people. There's a bond formed there. So they had this unique sign that reminded them that God had uniquely called them out of the rest of the nations in order that he would be their God and they would be his unique people. So in a sense you can say, The signs that God gives in covenants, like like baptism in the New Covenant, communicates to us, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in how you live. And this sign, it was never meant to be a source of national, spiritual, individual pride, which it ultimately became later, became a major issue. Because in and of themselves, there was nothing special about this people. God marked them because he had purchased them. He had pursued them and bought them. What made them special was that God had chosen to set his special love upon them. But it did distinguish them. I mean, think of it, when, when David goes before Goliath. Remember what he calls him? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine? If you're looking for a good insult to use on someone, <laughs> there's one you probably have never heard. <laughs> we are the people of God. God is on our side. We can face this this guy, Goliath. So it marks them as God's people. Second, this sign reminded the people of God's promises. What was one of the main promises that God had given to Abraham? It's the promise of offspring. God said to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Nations shall come from you. Kings shall come from you. So the very location of this sign was to communicate the significance of the promise that God was making to them. But remember, this is not the only promise of offspring in the Bible. There's an earlier one that's even... More important than it, Genesis 3.15, the first gospel promise in the Bible, God says to the serpent as he's cursing him, I'm gonna put enmity, war between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. The first promise that arises out of the darkness and despair of sin in the garden is a promise of an offspring who will come to undo the curse, to crush the serpent, So it really drives the whole storyline of the Bible. Everyone is meant to be looking for not just many offspring from Abraham, but the offspring who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Third, the sign was to remind the people of the priority of the heart. The external was always to point to the internal. The physical mark of cutting, being consecrated to the Lord through circumcision, always pointed to the need to be spiritually, wholly consecrated to the Lord in our hearts. And it's always been this case. The external sign was to point to internal realities. Think of some of the statements that the Old Testament authors give later in the Bible. Deuteronomy 10:16, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. Jeremiah 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. The physical sign was never just an end in itself. It was always to be connected with and accompanied by an internal change. Faith in the heart because of what the sign pointed to. So, so even in the Old Testament, the sign without faith and what the sign pointed to was empty and meaningless. Which is why when Jesus comes to deal with the religious leaders and they say, we have Abraham as our father. They think of their, their lineage, their distinguishing marks. And he's saying, no, 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 you're of your father, the devil, because your hearts are not changed. Finally, the sign of circumcision was to remind the people of the punishment their sin deserved. When God gives signs, they signify both blessing and curse. So the sign pointed to the promises, pointed to possession, that that you're God's people. Yet it also reminded them that apart from being God's people, we deserve to be cut off. Removed, cast out. E- even baptism. Think about it. In the Bible, with water, the people that get wet are the people that get judged, usually. Think of it. In, in Noah's day, when water came, who stayed dry and who got wet? In Egypt, with the crossing of the Red Sea, who stayed dry and who got wet? There's blessing and curse wrapped up in these, in these signs. So Genesis 17, 14. God... He's being intentionally ironic when he speaks to Abraham about the need for the sign. Look at verse 14. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The irony comes when you understand that the practice of circumcision requires a cutting off. Very painful one, especially for a 99-year-old, I'd imagine. And God is saying if you do not obey this practice, you will experience a cutting off in a relationship with me. So every time the sign was practiced, the people were reminded of the fact that if God had not graciously entered into covenant with them, brought them to himself, they would have been cast out, cut off, sent away from the Lord. It was the same thing with the Passover. If they had not put that blood on the doorpost, they were reminded that someone's blood had to be shed for them to be covered and passed over to maintain a relationship with the Lord. So that's what the sign points to. And in light of what it points to, it's important to note that the whole Old Testament is in part a story telling us that though Israel was circumcised in the flesh, they were not circumcised in their hearts to the Lord, generally speaking. They ended up looking more like the uncircumcised Philistines that they taunted. And they worshiped the same false gods that they did. And so when God sends them into exile... Through the prophet Jeremiah, he pronounces this judgment over them. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will punish all those who are circumcised merely in the flesh. Egypt, Judah, Edom, the sons of Ammon, Moab, and all who dwell in the desert, who cut the corners of their hair, for all these nations are uncircumcised, and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised in heart. So as you come to the pages of the New Testament, the question that's to be on your mind, is how is God going to deal with this internal problem that we have? The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. We need to be changed internally. We need someone to do a work of grace in our heart, a place that human hands and human works cannot reach and cannot change. So how's God going to deal with it? We'll enter onto the scene of the story of redemption, Jesus. When Jesus is just eight days old, Luke records for us that his parents brought him and had him circumcised. And when they had him circumcised on the eighth day, it's the first day that they called him by the name that the angel had given them. And remember the significance of names in Genesis 17. The name signifies what God is going to do with that person, the, the, the purpose, the destiny he has for them. And so Jesus, at this occasion of this sign, is called Jesus for the first time. What does Jesus mean? means the Lord saves. Matthew 1, 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. God is sending one to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The Lord saves. So why does he take on this sign? He who has no sin takes on this sign because he needed to be identified with us. He needed to Take our place and live the life that we ought to have lived so that we could be brought into a covenant relationship with the Lord. Jesus' coming and doing this is the Lord graciously and relentlessly pursuing us that he might bring us into a covenant relationship with himself. And, and where was this covenant relationship secured? Where was the sin dealt with that was this barrier between us and God? Well, it's at the cross of Jesus. And listen to how Paul describes the cross in Christ also, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. And you who are dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So The cross itself, the suffering of our Savior as our substitute on the cross is called a circumcision. Why? Because he is fulfilling what that sign had pointed to all along. On the cross, he who knew no sin was made sin for so that we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was the one who was ultimately cut off so that we could be brought in by a gracious, relentless God who was bringing us into a relationship with himself. Isaiah 53, prophesying about the cross hundreds of years earlier said we considered him cut off from the land of the living and jesus is fulfilling this on the cross his blood was shed to the point of death so that we could be spared so that our life could be spared so that we could be brought into a relationship with the lord god graciously and relentlessly pursues us to bring us into a covenant relationship with himself and the greatest evidence of that is that he did not spare his own son but cut him off so that he might bring us in to be with him. Let's pray.